I would ask you to join me in your Bibles in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 9 through 12 will be our text today. It was just about exactly eight years ago that we lost Katie's mom. We spent uh, Mother's Day 2013 in her hospital room, and later that same week, she was gone. And over the years since, we remembered uh, many things that she used to say, some things that were funny, some things that uh, point us to Jesus. But one thing that Katie always uh, puts up on social media whenever she posts a picture of herself with her three sisters is something like, Mom always said that the best thing that your father and I ever did for you was to give you each other. The blessing of family, the blessing of sisters, brothers. It's this kind of family relationship that we've seen as we've been working through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. He described himself and his missionary team as uh, caring for the church like a nursing mother, an encouraging father. And these young believers were their pride and joy. And though Paul was taken away from them because of persecution, he wants to know that they are grounded and growing in the faith. Usually we think of kids growing up to more and more independence. And we're going to see that in our passage today. But this maturity also shows itself in a kind of interdependence of brotherly love, moving past childish squabbles to be a tight-knit family of faith. So, as I said, our text is uh, verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4. But as I did last week, I want to read the the larger section to keep the the bigger picture in view. So I'm going to back up to uh, the end of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 11, and then read on through our text today, chapter 4, verse 12. So, Follow along as I read, beginning 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, so that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on 
no one. This is God's word. And altogether, that whole piece that I read is a series of exhortations to these believers to keep on growing in practical ways that please God, in the words of uh, 4 verse 1. So my summary for this short, last short paragraph, verses 9 through 12, is this. Strive to please God in the way you love in the church and live in the world. So this, this more and more, this, this, this urging exhortation, strive. Strive to please God in the way you love in the church and live in the world. Now, my outlines usually try to summarize larger uh, sections of text because this is so short. I mean, it, virtually each verse is a subpoint of these two dimensions, uh, loving in the church and living in the world. So here's, here's the first part, loving in the church. Taught by, and we're focusing on this phrase, taught by God to love one another there in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, but uh, for you all yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Well, I mean, if this also means that you don't need anyone to preach to you because you have all been taught by God, this could be pretty short. Um, except... Now, you knew you weren't going to get out of it, right? Except that there is a whole lot behind that, that phrase, taught by God, that we might not appreciate. Uh, and I think it will be encouraging to us if we trace it out, hopefully encouraging us to actually love one another more and more. You could say that we've been taught by God to love one another uh, in the law, God's law. Love your neighbor as yourself was in the law that God gave to his people Israel through Moses Back in the book of Leviticus, Jesus points to the same command and, uh, and as a summary of the entire law, well, the, the second commandment, he says, the first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But laws, commands, rules, you know, only go so far. Any, any parent knows that. We make rules about having to eat your vegetables before you get dessert or, you know, limiting screen time to a certain number of minutes per day or hours per week. And, uh, but, but we know that if our kids don't internalize those values, those priorities, you know, those external boundaries are going to be gone the moment they move out of the house or the moment that I leave the room. This is a fundamental problem of humanity, not just with kids, with all of us. Sin is in our nature, or in other words, we sin naturally. It comes naturally. Our hearts are bent away from what God wants. And like earlier in the passage, God wants, it's God's will for us to be holy. God wants us to be holy, pure, devoted to him. We want to give in to every passion and unlawful desire. So if the problem is in our very nature, then more laws, more rules, no matter how clearly they are posted, won't help. We're, we're right in, in the same situation that Paul is at the end of Romans chapter 7, and I'll paraphrase his words, who can rescue us from this self-destruction? Uh, centuries earlier, God gave a promise to his people of a coming rescue. That, and then Paul might actually have this verse in mind as he's writing here in 1 Thessalonians. This is Isaiah 54, 13. 
all your children, one day all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And of course, the beautiful thing is here is, is this is Paul's spiritual children that he's writing about. Uh, even more, even more, this promise that, that is uh, more fully seen in the book of Jeremiah. Many of you know this as the, the new covenant. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the promise God was making to his people centuries before Christ that one day I will make it so that that my law is internalized in your hearts, in our hearts. And that comes to us through Jesus Christ, through the gospel as we trust in Jesus. And so you you know this in in a different uh, spheres of life when your computer or your phone gets an operating system update, uh, it, it is changed at a fundamental level. And of course, I'm not saying we're, you know, machines that just kind of programmed, but, but uh, you could say that we are reprogrammed to operate differently or more biblically. Your creator makes you into a new creation. Through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, your creator makes you into a new creation. Your heart beats with a new life, with a new love. And then the fellowship of believers, a community of people with new hearts, new New life, new love, that, that, that fellowship is not marked by sexual immorality, as we saw in the last paragraph, verse 3. That's the wrong kind of love in the church. The right kind of love in the church is not erotic love, but brotherly love, verse 9, because we are made a family through the gospel. Paul and his missionaries, we've said, they're like mothers and fathers in the faith. These believers are now brothers and sisters in Christ. He calls them, Paul calls them brothers 19 times in this one short letter. And what is one thing that, that every parent wants? After I'm gone, I want you to get along. I want you to love each other. We here today as believers need to first embrace the identity as those in God's family made brothers and sisters with one another. Uh, as, as brothers and sisters, family, family is who we are. And this is who we are called to be to each other, for each other. Walking with each other through times of sorrow and loss, praying for each other, praying with each other, meeting practical needs, care, food, sometimes even financially. And, and what a gift that is that God has given us each other, like Katie's mom said. What a gift that God has given us each other and hearts of love to, to love one another. That's, that's part of the promise that God has for us in the gospel, fulfilled in the gospel. So loving the church, top I got to love one another. Here's the next part. Loving in the church, what you are doing, do this more and more. So verse 10 again. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. 
Now, when he says the, the brothers in, throughout Macedonia, maybe you've forgotten, Thessalonica is the city, Macedonia is the region. So what Mount Morris is to Illinois, something like that, or, or the, you know, the Rock River Valley, something like that. Um, so a couple things here. He's, he's using the word brothers inclusively. I hope that's been clear already, but making sure you know that. So men and women in the church. And that would have included, in the region of Macedonia, that would have included cities that, were, that we know about in Scripture, like Philippi and Berea and, of course, Thessalonica. And by this time, sometime later after he's planted the church, there might have even been more churches and more uh, cities, villages in that region. So what did this love involve in loving not just believers in their own congregation, but throughout the region? Well, um, we don't know exactly because he doesn't tell us what he's specifically referring to, but, but going by Paul's other letters, going by what we know he did in the book of Acts, it went beyond warm thoughts and, and uh, you know, fond memories. He, he may be referring how they uh, shared teachers, how they provided financial assistance for those in need, possibly hospitality for those who were traveling through, partnering together to support uh, missionaries like Paul. And, and we do those very same kinds of things as a church. Um, just in the last few years, uh, we helped plant a church, a Christ Church in Sterling. We gave a gift to an ethnically Laotian church, EFCA church in Rockford, to help them, uh, along with other churches in our area, to help them pay off their mortgage on their building. We used our church plant fund to help a, a EFCA restart of a church in Ottawa, Illinois, to help them buy some equipment. But, but it goes beyond even our, our own denomination to other faithful evangelical churches. We, we've partnered, as you know, we, with uh, uh, four other churches to do our youth winter camp. And uh, we've helped fill the, church, the, fill the pulpit at Morning Star Church in Rockford when they've gone through staff transitions. Or our former associate pastor, Lance uh, Menon, was uh, you know, helping out, filling in when they were in between uh, worship pastors. And it turned into a... Uh, a permanent part-time position. He's not uh, on staff there full-time, but, but uh, now he continues to do ministry there. And I, so, and I know this happens beyond just pastoral ministry in, in a formal ways. Um, many of you have friends, coworkers, classmates from other churches. We work with other believers at our food pantry, Loaves and Fish, here in Mount Morris. Some of you volunteer together at Hope Life Center in Rock Falls. Uh, some of you have, have fellowship and support through Faith Christian School and Grand Detour or, or even lead Bible studies where many churches are represented. We don't view uh, other believers from, from good, sound churches as competitors or opponents, uh, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that love transcends any one particular congregation. Uh, and, and the fact that that, that that bond, that fellowship goes beyond just, you know, the turf wars of, of uh, uh, one particular church, uh, that really speaks well of the gospel. We're not trying to build a brand or a franchise. We are working for Christ and his kingdom. And where Christ and his kingdom goes forward, we all win. I mean, that's, that's, that's victory. Um, let's do this more and more, Paul says. When Paul says, we urge you, this urge is the same word from Verse, verse uh, 1 um, of this chapter, that same word for exhort that he talked about fathers doing, that, that coming alongside coaching we've been talking about a lot. I mentioned last week, I mean, this is good coaching, good parenting, good pastoring, when, when in verse 1 he says, hey, just as you are doing, 
do, the, do so more and more. And, and again here, it does the same thing, the same move in verse 10. That is indeed what you are doing, but, but do this more and more. If he didn't start with the affirmation and just only with the exhortation, it could, just, it could be overwhelming. You know, like, oh, I can never do enough to please this guy. He always wants more and more from me. Uh, but, but if it was only affirmation, it could be counterproductive. Like, well, he tells us we're doing a great job, so I guess we can, you know, kind of relax a little bit here. No, it's, it's having the, the right mix of affirmation and exhortation leads to motivation. And that's what he's, he's doing for them and I hope for us. Like that, like that first time you, you learn how to ride a bicycle, you need the right mix of affirmation and exhortation. You know, hey, hey, you're doing it. You're, doing, you're, you're staying up there. Okay, that's good. But no, you got to keep pedaling. No, like, as soon as you're like, hey, I'm doing it. Okay, now I can relax. No, you got to keep pedaling. You got to keep going to, if you're going to stay up. You, you got, you've got it. Way to go. Keep pedaling. Paul is saying to the believers in Thessalonica, church, when I, I hear about what you're doing, I, I mean, I'm excited for you. I love it. I, you're, you're doing a great job, but keep going. Keep going. Don't, don't slow up now. This is the time to keep pedaling. If you're, on a, if you're on a stationary bike, you know, an exercise bike, you're just pumping those, your legs for exercise, it probably seems pointless. Uh, but if you're a kid just learning to ride a two-wheeler, it's pure joy, isn't it? And that's what I think Paul is doing as he's urging, exhorting us. Don't hear it like, just keep on spinning those legs. You know, Don't hear it that way. Don't hear it as, as life and love in the church is some pointless drudgery, but we just got to keep on doing it anyway. No. Think of it as the joy, the life, and the love that God has brought us to. And, and, he, and he says, you're, you're doing it. Keep, keep doing it. Keep going. Don't slow now. Don't, don't, don't give up now. Don't slow down now. This is, this is a joy. So in verses uh, 9 and 10, we've got this brotherly love, this life of love that we need to, to keep on in and, and more and more. And then in verses 11 and 12, we have something of a shift. It's less about loving in the church and more about living in the world. So let me read those verses again. Verse 11. So he's, he's been urging us uh, to love more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That word outsiders is, is not said with a sneer. Oh, the, you know, the outsiders. It's just, it just means we, we have to think about how we live in the family and outside the family toward those who are not yet part of the family. So here's the third part or the second dimension, living in the world, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Now, since we all live in small towns and flyover country, uh, probably safe to say that most of us are pretty happy to live quietly and to mind our own affairs. Uh, is that what Paul's talking about? Like, you know, the ideal would be to, you know, get a cabin in the woods in the back country of Idaho off the grid. Um, you know, that might sound attractive to, uh, to many of us. Uh, but, uh, but then, you know, you have, might have in the back of your mind, but wait a minute, what about... What about the, the work of evangelism and world missions? What about defending the unborn or working for a better community or a better country? 
Now, there's no reason to think that Paul intended these believers to move out of the city of Thessalonica. It it wasn't a metropolis by today's standards, but it was the capital of the region of Macedonia, that province. So this is not about getting out of the rat race of city life. Uh, Other scriptures seem to show that the concern here is more likely about uh, avoiding sin and unnecessary conflict with the world. So uh, here's a passage that that may help show that. Um, 1 Peter 4, 14 to 16 says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, so so some, some mild level of persecution, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Every time I read those verses, I think, okay, uh, let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief. Now, first you're like, he's got to tell the Christians not to, like, whoa, blows your mind. But then, you know, that, that's the kind of life they were coming out of, okay? But, but then I also think, so let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or a meddler. Someone who does not mind his own affairs and does not live quietly. You're like, okay, it doesn't, this doesn't seem to fit. It is not at the same, same level. Is being a meddler all that bad? Well, Think, think about it. Uh, things like murder, theft. Uh, no one just goes out and does that. It's not uh, random acts of violence here. This is, this is being involved with some bad people doing some bad things. Uh, really bad. No, maybe not at the level uh, in this case and uh, what who Peter's writing to or Thessalonica. Maybe not at the level of a gang or the, you know, the mafia. Um, but, but kind of that same dynamic. If you follow, instead of Instead of working a simple job, uh, making enough to live on, you are in this network, this web of relationships and obligations that get you in trouble. I don't think we have any gang members or mafiosi here today with us, Um, but you might be involved in business or politics or academics or athletics in such a way that you are, that you've compromised yourself morally in order to Move yourself up in the world. He says, instead of, instead of that aspiration, you know, uh, I, I wanna, I'm going to get ahead or I'm going to get in. I'm going to be part of the insiders uh, by doing these things, these things that are sinful and wrong. That's how, that's how I'm going to provide for myself. That's how I'm going to get somewhere in the world. Instead of that, aspire differently. Aspire to live a quiet life, minding your own affairs. Another passage that, that points us in the same direction, a little differently though, uh, is 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. This is probably the more familiar passage to you. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 begins, First of all then, Paul writes, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So notice, it's not that we don't care. To to live a quiet life is not to care about politics and government. It's not to care about evangelism. You know, God wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, 
But we are praying that God would so work in our leaders, in our government, that we might be able to live just a simple, quiet, godly life. A life that this passage says, like for Thessalonians, that pleases God and may be a part of our gospel witness. We're now in... in uh, Graduation season. I know Kelly Strandberg graduated from college yesterday. Uh, we went to our first graduation party yesterday. And, you know, it, of course, it is, it is absolutely fine to tell our graduates, our students, your kids to dream big, to aspire to change the world. Sure. Uh, maybe we have some future leaders, some important voices, some entrepreneurs, some missionaries in this room right now. That'd be great. But there is something very noble and worthwhile to aspire to live quietly, a quiet life that is godly and dignified in every way. That's, that's something to aspire to. And I'm going to shift to the last part of the sermon, but, but this, this is just carrying over this same, this same point. So living in the world, work with your hands and be dependent on no one. That's how uh, verse 11 ends. To work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We've got a mix in the room today like we usually do. We've got uh, farmers and factory workers. We also have some professionals and those in management. You know, work with your own hands. Is, is Paul you know, biased against you know, those white-collar folks? Uh, well, that's unlikely. I mean, he was—he had been in the world of academia as a as a scholar um, in his training, uh, religious scholar. His primary vocation uh, at this point is preaching and teaching. And, but he also has experience in the trades as a tent maker. We saw that uh, earlier as in, in the letter, but uh, really you can see it in Acts eighteen verse three. He. Uh, is, is working as a tent maker to help support his ministry. So this, this makes Paul a fascinating guy. I mean, you can't just pigeonhole him I- into one category, category or another. Um, he has an elite education, uh, but he is not afraid of manual labor. He is not above hard work, especially when it comes to the cause of the gospel. We saw this back in chapter 2, verse 9. Maybe you can flip a page or just across the page and see chapter 2 verse 9 says, for you remember brothers our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So that, that part that we may not be a burden to you, it's just the same idea in 412, not being dependent on no one, right? Not being a burden being dependent on no one. Paul, and Paul expected these believers to follow his example. So the exhortation to these Christians to work with your hands is not so much about career choice. You know, why don't you go into carpentry rather than accounting? What, that's, that's not what it's about. It's more about work for your living rather than live off a patron uh, being independent for the sake of your gospel witness, just like Paul. Now, now living off of a patron, that, that's a strange thing to us. We don't really um, have that scenario available to us today, but it was part of Greco-Roman culture in that time. Uh, it, part of the, just part of the social fabric, the economic system of that day. The, the wealthy 
there would be often very extreme, uh, wide extremes of the very rich, the very poor, and the very wealthy was just kind of understood that they would support financially uh, a certain number of individuals that they, they weren't employees, they weren't slaves, uh, they were just people who would, you know, do errands, favors for this uh, wealthy person and make sure that their interests were being advanced in the community, in society. Not, not on the level of the mafia, like I was talking about earlier, uh, but just, you know, part of their entourage, so to speak, to, to make these patrons look more important. That was a big deal for them in that, that culture. Their honor in society. And the more people that you have, you know, kind of uh, in your orbit uh, made you a bigger deal. And so they were willing to throw money to more people to keep more people in their orbit and uh, make them a, a bigger deal in the community. Now, uh, if you served a patron in this way, you might not have to work too hard, but you would be obliged to serve their interests. You would have to, you, you lived for their honor and their glory. On the other hand, working with your hands, that is, earning your own living, being dependent on no one, might mean that you, the, these Christians would have to work a little harder, uh, might have a little less, more aches and pains as they go to bed at night, but they were free to live for God. I've been reading on the topic of religious freedom uh, recently, including some of the history behind the colonies of New England. In, in the 1600s, I mean, this was true uh, in the 1500s as well, but in the 1600s when the colonies were being formed in New England, the home country, England, was not always hospitable to Christians who did not conform to the practice of the state church, the Church of England. And the consequences for these nonconformists, or some known as Puritans, uh, were severe. Prison, torture, mutilation, mutilation, like, yeah, sometimes they would cut off their ears or cut out their tongues, uh, and, and, and of course, the, it, it, the extreme death. Um, but not, you know, by injection, something, you know, hanging, dismembering, some gruesome stuff. So in one sense, you might think, well, pretty easy decision to come to America, right? Um, you're, it, but it was wilderness as far as they were concerned. Uh, they had to work with their hands to, to make their homes, plant their crops just to survive. Some of them had been high-ranking officials uh, and scholars and they had to work hard at manual labor as, as anyone else in, these, in the new world. And that's not just a history lesson from, from centuries ago. Some of you remember um, right here in our own community, uh, a family of Ethiopian, Ethiopian believers who were refugees uh, from their, country, uh, their home country came to the United States and ended up in Mount Morris, Illinois. And... Uh, if you remember, Gurma, he'd been a banker in his home country. Uh, in Mount Morris, he polished the floors at Pinecrest. Now there's, according to this passage, there's dignity in that. But there's also courage and humility and incredible devotion. Because he wasn't just leaving his country to save his life, he was leaving his country so that he did not surrender the gospel in his life. Would you rather be a banker without Christ 
or a janitor with Christ? He had to answer that question. Now, of course, I'm not saying you can't be a banker and please God in a country that offers religious freedom. But if you are dependent on someone or something that keeps you from living for Christ, you need to hear the call, the exhortation from from Paul to the Thessalonians, from God's word to you and me today. Yes, dream big. Uh, get Get that nice job. Serve well and glorify God in whatever, to to the extent of your gifts and capacities. Get a good education and go uh, earn money. Yeah. Be generous with it. Do all those things. But parents, dream big for your kids, not in the world's way. Students, shoot for the stars. Reach for the stars, but not in the world's way. Believers, Aspire to live a quiet life, minding your own affairs, working with your hands, dependent on no one but God. That, understand, that's, that has to be implied in there. This is not just about whether or not you're, uh, you know, do you depend on the government or you depend on yourself for your income. We're not depending on the world. We're depending on the Lord for all that we have and all that we are. And if we're a little bit less than what we dreamed we would be, if we still have the Lord, that's where we want to be. This is how you strive to please God as you love in the church and live in the world. May God help us to do just that. Father, we're asking for your mercy. You've given us your your mercy and grace to us. You loved us when we did not love you. When we did not know you, you loved us in sending us your son who gave himself to forgive our sins, all the ways that we have been unloving and failed to love you and other people. But Lord, we pray that you do more than just forgive us, that you would free us, free our hearts too from the bondage to our self-absorption and our our commitment to have things our way and the, the, the greed and the lust, the desire for the things that the world offers that you don't want us to have. Forgive us and free us and form us to be people who love what you love, to love you and to love one another. And Lord, I pray that we would live in such a way that even those that are right now outside the family would be drawn to you, drawn into your family. We pray, God, that you do this in this people. In Jesus' name, amen.